Uh, so June, tw- uh, June 6, 1944, uh, when I say that date, uh, many of you might be thinking of D-Day. It is probably the most decisive uh, uh, a turn of events in World War II for the good guys, for the Allied forces uh, that turned the tide in the war. Uh, so you may be familiar with that, but there's some things about D-Day that you may not be as familiar with. For example, there was almost 160,000 troops involved in the uh, attack on the Normandy beaches that day. It was the largest amphibious attack or insurgents in human history. Um, They were going into France because they needed to take back control of the western part of Europe. And so they're going into France to try to do that, to try to get it out of Nazi control. Uh, But what you may not know is the incredible amount of deception that was involved in this attack. You see, uh, the Axis allies, the Nazis knew an attack like this was coming. It's quite impossible to plan uh, an attack of this magnitude without them finding out. So they knew that it was going to be coming, and they even knew the day that it was going to appear. Uh, And so because of that, the Allied forces actually did everything that they could uh, to deceive and to trick the the Nazis and the Axis forces to think that this attack was going to be happening in a different part of France than it was actually happening. And so in the weeks leading up to June 6, 1940, uh, they actually put hundreds of uh, dummy tanks, inflatable tanks, on different parts of the coastline in France. They would even uh, ship. Uh, uh, they had ships go in that direction to kind of make them think that everything was heading over there. And in fact, on the morning of D-Day, uh, they dropped dummy paratroopers in this part of France. Some of them were inflatable. Some of them were laced with explosives. So when they landed, uh, bombs would go off. All again, all in hopes that the Nazi forces would would turn their attention and their uh, and their equipment. Uh, to this other area of France. Now, this actually was successful in four of the five beaches on, on, on D-Day in Normandy that were stormed. Uh, many of the gun stations were moved to these other parts of France. However, Omaha, uh, the gun stations and the mines and many of those things stayed put. This is why when you think of D-Day and you think of the beach storming, you're probably thinking of the Omaha Beach. That was the most bloody one uh, because of many of the gun stations and stuff were still there. Uh, but the other four of the five beaches, a lot of them were moved, and so there was much less resistance. And so uh, there was the two reasons, two reasons for the Allies' victory in the D-Day and the coming days after that. One was deception. They tricked uh, the Nazis into thinking that this attack was going to be going somewhere else, so they were not quite as prepared, uh, which would not have in and of itself been enough. But the other reason was because Hitler was asleep when the attack began. Now, what's interesting is Hitler was asleep because he was so confident that they were going to win, uh, that he did not wake up in the early mornings hours when the uh, attack was happening. Uh, Hitler was a, a night owl. He uh, very regularly wouldn't wake up till about 11 or 12 in the morning. Uh, on D-Day, we know he didn't wake up till about 10 a.m. The problem was when the Nazis realized that the Allied forces were attacking another part of France, uh, all of his generals were so terrified of waking him up that they didn't wake him up. And it's significant because there are certain parts of the Nazi army, for example, the elite SS Panzer Division of Tanks, there's over 1,000 tanks in this unit, they could not be moved without Hitler's consent. And so in war, reinforcements are everything, and so when they found that the Allied forces were attacking somewhere else, they didn't wake up Hitler because they didn't want to be, I don't know, in trouble, maybe killed themselves for waking him up, and so they end up losing because they couldn't get people in the right places to defend the beaches. And so the tide was turned because the Nazis didn't know what it was coming, and because Hitler was asleep. Now, what does that have to do with Exodus? Nothing. I just thought it was awesome. I'm just kidding. Uh, It actually has to, here's what it has to do. Uh, They won because the Nazis were completely surprised, 
And when we think of D-Day, we might think maybe they planned for it for a couple of months, which you may not realize that this was actually years in the making. You see, the Allied forces knew at some point they would have to attack, a, do a land invasion on the western part of Europe to, in order to get it ally, out of the Nazi control. And so this was actually years in the making. What we, we, what we might think was just kind of maybe a few months thing or a spur of the moment thing took a long time. And that's relevant because this morning will be in Exodus chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone, there's a black Bible in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, you can take one home. That is our gift to you. We're picking up the story of Exodus, and this is God uh, taking the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt and making them into a nation, again, from which the Messiah would come. Uh, we have seen so far uh, that, the, that the Israelites have been enslaved. Uh, there's been genocide against them. Babies are being born. Families are being ripped apart. Uh, last week, we saw Moses uh, being born, and it's not at all kind of the fairy tale Sunday school story that we think of. He was essentially put in like this armored basket into the Nile River, which as we saw last week was anything but serene and soft. There are Nile crocodiles, there are tiger fish. Uh, It's very fast rushing. There's nothing safe about this, but because Moses' mother knew he had a better chance surviving in the Nile than in her house, she had no choice. Somehow, some way, this basket with Moses in it ends up into an area where one of Pharaoh's daughters was bathing, and she essentially saves Moses' life and adopts him. And so we're going to pick up this story in chapter 2, verses, uh, for starting in verse 11. We saw that God preserved Moses' life as an infant. Now we're going to see God preserve Moses' life as an adult. And again, show us how he has been moving, and not just in this case years, but actually decades in the work to save Israel when they finally cry out to him. So years later, it says this. Uh, Moses is about 40 years old at this point. We don't hear anything else. We don't know anything else about Moses uh, from the time he was born until here. And here's what it says, verse 11. It says, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, when he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly no. So again, he's around 40 years old at this part. He's grown up as part of the elite social class in Egypt. He is royalty. Uh, he's He's somehow a prince of Egypt as a daughter of Pharaoh. And so what he is doing here is profound. We might read this and be like, well, he's an Israelite. And of course, somehow, some way, he kind of knew that he actually was an Israelite. So that's what he should do. But when you have grown up being taught certain things, having all of the privileges and wealth that Moses had, it is quite a profound for him to stand up against the evil of the Egyptians, the slavery of the Egyptians to the Israelites, the genocide that they were causing, this actually took a lot of uh, a character and courage to do this. In fact, so much so that in the book of Acts chapter 7, uh, when Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr, is going to die, he's in front of a bunch of religious leaders, and he's basically walking them through, showing them that all of the scriptures are pointing to this Messiah that is coming. He actually references this part of Moses' life to help make that point. In chapter 7, verse 22, the verses will be on the screen. It says this, he says this, so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. 
When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue, avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. So again, Moses is an elite. He's culturally elite. He is royalty. It took a lot of courage and compassion uh, to drive him, even though we would say maybe he didn't do this in the best, uh, the, the, the mode in which he tried to handle the situation wasn't the best. It still took courage to stand up against what was happening. Uh, what we know, and especially in ancient Near Eastern culture, is that education, if you were educated, you were somebody. If you had non-calloused hands like Moses would, would have had or would not have had uh, because he wasn't doing any physical labor, that meant that you, were, you mattered more than those who were enslaved and those who did physical labor. In fact, we even have ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern Egyptian texts uh, that talk about how slaves were considered no different than donkeys. So again, we have to understand that when this is what you have been taught for 40 years, that these slaves are nothing, they do not matter to anybody, uh, and if you stand up for them, things will not go well for you, as Moses knows, because he's going to flee, because he, because he gets found out that he is the one that did, that did this. This took a lot of courage. In fact, so much so that in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament is in some ways talking about men and women of God who have been really, really faithful. And Moses makes the list. And again, this particular moment in Moses' life is mentioned. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. So what we see happening here again, that Moses enjoyed all of the privileges and power and prestige, yet gives them up and sides with an oppressed people, and then therefore is going to be mistreated among them, right? He has everything going for him. He's, he has power. He has prestige. He sides with an oppressed people and then gets guaranteed mistreatment among them. Who does this sound like? Okay, <clears throat> We're in church, just a hint, okay? Who does this sound like? Jesus, right? In fact, thank you. In Philippians chapter 5, is the last one we'll read before we get back to Exodus. Paul is talking about us emulating Jesus and how he loved and gave his life for us. Here's how he, part of how he or demonstrates what Jesus did for us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." What we see happening here, this is not just a random collection of stories. That what, that what we see happening, even in this story, even in Moses' life, that he is pointing us to the Messiah who was to come. And Stephen's point and why he is referencing this story is to give an indictment on the religious leaders who think they are following Moses, but they're not because they are rejecting the Messiah of which the Israelites and Moses himself was pointing to. That They don't see that Jesus is the point of all of this. And one of the main themes that we are going to repeat as we go through Exodus is this, that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. 
Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Moses' life in itself is meant to show us uh, a true shepherd who would come and live a perfect life inside within oppressed people to give us grace and forgiveness that we do not deserve. And it's not just a random collection of stories. And what can happen when we pick a story here or there, or as we've seen the last couple of weeks, if you pick a verse here or there, that you can miss out what Scripture is actually teaching us that the Exodus is not just kind of a cool story, that what they're doing here is, the, is p- paving a way for the Messiah to come and at the same time pointing us to him. The scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Let me give you maybe some practical examples of, of how maybe to better maybe cement this in your mind about how if we just take a few random stories, we can miss out on what's going on. This will be a good example. Uh, for those of you that were here last Sunday and those of you that weren't here last Sunday, you'll see the difference here. So for example, if I told you three things, if I said the internet, and if I said AOL, and I said Adam Pickard, or I should say Pastor Adam last night, because he got ordained. There we go, right? Now, some of you are laughing. If you were here last Sunday, you're laughing. Why? Because you know that those are not three things, random things. You know if you put those things together, what do you get? There you go. This was Adam Pickard's screen name in middle school, right? And all of a sudden, you see it makes sense. It's unified when it comes together. I'll give you another example, okay? If I told you number six, uh, Mountain Dew, and a bag of chips, you're probably like, what do I do with that? Well, let me tell you what you do with that. If you want to bless your pastor, you walk into Jersey Mike's and you tell them those three things, and then you drop it off. I'm here most days during the week, okay? So you can come in. You don't even have to call me just... I'll be here, right? Those things might sound random, but when you put them together, it makes a beautiful story, right? Beautiful story. Give you one more example. If you take me, Dylan, and you give me a bunch of tools, and you add a bunch of wood, what do you get? What? How do you know this? Right? That's what happens, right? You get nothing. That actually makes no sense because I can't, I can't build anything to save my life. That is not what Scripture is, right? Scripture is hello, ladies, okay? <laughs> scripture is a fine meal from Jersey Mike's, okay? And if that helps you remember it, I think Jesus is okay with me saying that, okay? But again, this is the point. Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's not just a random collection of events, but it's meant to show us something that is important. And so let's continue the story, uh, picking it back up in chapter, or sorry, in verse 14 of chapter 2. It says this again. The Hebrews said to Moses, who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to the live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well, right? So Moses here tries to take matters into his own hands and now probably experiences outwardly what he has probably experienced inwardly for a long time. And that is a man without a home, right? He's grown up an Egyptian, a high class, upper class. And yet in this story, series of events, he knows that he is an Israelite. He's grown up as a man without a home. What's interesting here is that as a prince, Moses could do whatever he wanted to do. Like he could get away with whatever he wanted to get away with, except standing up for the Israelites, right? And so it was, very, it was very clearly known that somehow, some way, this would get back to Pharaoh, that an Egyptian was killed. And of course, the Israelites don't want to take the blame for this because things would go even worse for them. So he knows that he's going to be found out about it. So he flees. Here's what happens next in verse 16. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to, to, to water their father's flock. 
Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Reuel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. So Moses flees to a land called Midian. He eventually helps a daughters of a priest or one of the leaders of the Midianites. Um, And he stands up again. We see again here that he stands up for what would have been considered a lower class people, women. And so he he's finds himself uh, at this place where there's water, and he sees these women gathering water for their flock, and there's these other shepherds around that were trying to, fl- uh, trying to make them go away. But Moses stands up for them and gets the other shepherds to flee. And then he waters their flock, which typically in this time was woman's work. But men didn't do this typically. And so not only does he rescue them, he then serves them by watering the flock. And so these daughters go back to their father. They're telling him their story, and their dad's like, hold on, what? He rescued you? right? He watered your flock. He's like, this is a keeper, ladies. Like, what are you doing, right? Go get that man, right? And so that's what they do. They go back, they retreat Moses, verse 21. Moses agreed to stay with that man. And he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. So Moses settles in this, in this land of Midian. He eventually marries one of uh, the daughters named Zipporah, and they have a wife together. Uh, and at this point, he is now permanently cut off from his homeland. He's permanently, obviously, cut, up, cut off from the Egyptians. He's cut off from the Israelites. And then he has a son, and he names the son Ger, Ger, uh, sorry, Gershom, which means either an alien there or an alien in the land, right? His son's name is a representative of what he is feeling, of what his life has become, right? It show, it's really, it sums up his condition. Now, what's interesting here, if we were to pause for a second, uh, there is literally no world in which Moses could ever imagine that God was going to use him in the way that he would, right? He is no longer in his homeland. Uh, He married a foreigner. He is in a foreign land. He now has a child, right? He is here to stay. He is in what, what Scripture would call the wilderness, right? He is in a lonely place. He is in a destitute place compared to where he came from. He likely thinks that this is where I'm going to die. This is all life is going to be for me. What's interesting is that as, upon Moses taking matters into his own hands and killing the Egyptian, it set a series of events where God drives him out into the wilderness. And while we think that might be sad or unfortunate, what we see all throughout Scripture is that repeatedly throughout Scripture, wilderness is, is described as a place where people meet God. It's described as a place where people meet God. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. In Genesis chapter 28, uh, it is in the wilderness where Jacob uh, has a vision of a stairway to heaven. Now, Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, who God promised he was going to make a great nation from. It's at this moment in time that God changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, and hence we get the Israelites, uh, to reinforce his promise to Abraham. It's in the wilderness uh, for Jacob slash Israel where this happens. It's in the wilderness in 1 Kings chapter 19 where the great prophet Elijah hears the voice of God. In 1 Kings 18, there is a big battle between Elijah, who was a faithful prophet, and 450 prophets of Baal and Israel uh, who were sent out by King Ahab, who was a wicked king. They have this kind of face-off, and Elijah is faithful, and the Baal prophets are not, and the Baal prophets get killed, and so the King Ahab is upset about this, and he wants to kill the true and uh, faithful prophet Elijah. So Elijah's on the run, 
It's in the wilderness that he hears the voice of God. It's in the wilderness where John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, preaches repentance that the Messiah, that Jesus himself, has come. He's out in the wilderness when he does this and where he has his ministry. It's in the wilderness where Jesus claims victory over Satan after he has his 40 days of fasting and prayer. In the wilderness where Satan comes to him, that God, Jesus resisted his temptation in a way that Adam and Eve failed in Genesis chapter 2. It's in the wilderness where Paul, after he becomes a Christian and before he does all of this amazing ministry and writes many of the books in our New Testament, spends three years sitting and learning from other Christians. He doesn't like have this amazing conversion experience and then changes the world. He's in the wilderness for three years as he's learning and growing for God to move in his life. And I'll give you one last example. It's in the wilderness where God says to the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament that he wants the prophet Hosea to stop referring to him as master and to start referring to him as husband, that God is a husband who lays down his life for his people, right? And this presents a problem for us. For you and I who live in an American Western society, this presents a problem. In our post-enlightenment culture, what are we told? But we're told that suffering must be avoided at all costs, right? Suffering must be avoided. There's nothing good that can come out of it. We don't want to be in it. And so we, and so we, we soothe ourselves and we run to things that may not be good for us so that we can avoid any, any and all suffering. And what happens is, scripturally speaking, when we do that, we miss out on meeting with God, right? Because it is in the wilderness that we experience the presence of God. It's in the wilderness where we experience the presence of God. Of God. And so the question for us then is this Where are you avoiding God's presence? If it is in the wilderness when things are difficult and when things do not go the way that we want them to go, that we can experience God's presence if we pursue Him, the question is where in your life are things difficult and hard that you're fleeing from God and you're pursuing things that are not for your good, that you're missing out on His presence? This means leading in, leaning into your pain, into your grief, sharing how you're feeling with other trusted friends and mentors and people in your church community, that when we run from our presence, when we run from God's presence, when we run from suffering, we can miss out on seeing and experiencing God in a way that we never could have otherwise. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that suffering's fun and that we should enjoy it and we should be like, yes, life is terrible. Thank you, Jesus, right? It's not, but even in the midst of that, we can see a side of him that we would never see otherwise. And it could be, it could be that sometimes that it is actually God's grace to us that we experience suffering. That if he is the true God of the heavens and the earth and that he is the only way for us to experience life, it could be that our difficulties is God's wake-up call to say, I'm here and I love you. Where are you and where am I? Avoiding God's presence because we're suffering and instead of facing it and trusting God in the midst of it, we are going our own Way. See, it's in the wilderness where God is going to radically change Moses' life, and where for many of us, he wants to do the same. So here's what happens next in verse 23. It says this, the last few verses we'll read. It says, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So these verses conclude really the intro. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus is really the intro uh, to the Exodus story, and it reverts our attention back to Egypt, right? The Pharaoh 
who wanted to kill Moses is now dead. There's a different Pharaoh that has risen up. Of course, things are just as bad, if not even worse, for the Israelites. And so what do they do? They cried out. Now, cry out implies prayer. What's interesting here is in the midst of all of this suffering that's been happening for decades and for generations, uh, we have no indication that the Israelites even cried out to God. We have no indication of that until now. They finally cry out to God, and what happens? Right? However little they may have known about God at this point, they cry out to, the, to God, and God is finally going to begin their plan of rescue, as we'll see next week in Genesis chapter 3, through Moses. Now, just to be clear, sometimes I get, I've got confused about this in the Old Testament. When it says that God remembered, you might be thinking, does this mean like God forgets? Like, how does he not remember things? What's going on here? Uh, the Hebrew word <clears throat> zakar is how we translate. No, there goes that. The Hebrew word zakar <clears throat> is what we translate as remembered. And in Hebrew, it's, it means application, not recollection. So remembered means that now the plan is coming into fruition. The process of deliverance, here's what's interesting. The, profits, the process of deliverance is about to happen but yet through Moses' life, it has already begun. They, they have now finally are reaching out and crying out to God, and God through all of this is already playing, preparing a way even before they did that so that when they reached out to him, he would provide a way. And so there's a couple of things I want to point out about this passage as we close this morning. The first is this, that God always responds to repentance with grace. What we need to understand, again, when you read Scripture as a unified story, we see that God always responds to repentance with grace, which is good news for you and for I, because what do we often think? Oh, my life is hard. I've made some bad decisions, so I'm going to come to church. I'm going to reach out to God, and maybe he'll forgive me, and I've got to do a lot of good things before I can talk to him. That's not what we see in Scripture. We see that as we blow it, as we fall short, as we screw up, even as we de- deliberately do things that we know dishonor God and dishonor other people. Every time we cry out with repentance, God responds with grace. Always. And so again, I don't know what you're walking in here with this morning. I don't know what this year, this month, this week, even yesterday looked like for you. You just need to know that you and I, whenever we cry out to God, he always responds to our repentance with grace. Another thing we see in this story is this, that God is working even when we don't see it. God is working here even when we don't see it, right? The Israelites are just now crying out to God, but we're going to see that Moses' 80 years of life, he's going to be 80 by the time he he heads out back to Egypt, uh, that God has been working behind the scenes this entire time, even when they were unfaithful, even when they were not asking for him to do anything, he was still preparing a way. And this can be hard for us in the midst of our own wildernesses or in the midst of our own sufferings that we might not be able to see now what God is doing and in the future we can look back and see how God was gracious to us. Now, New City Church, I could sit up here and give you tons of stories how God was gracious and kind to our church when in the moment I had no idea or we could have had no idea. I'll just give you two brief examples and they both have to do with our meeting location, right? So we moved in here in March, but before that we spent almost three years on Creedmoor Road, about seven minutes away from here. In our own location, it was in this little office park. What you may not know is that before we started New City Church, we were looking at schools and community centers, trying to find a place where we could do the setup, tear down thing. Nothing was working, which was interesting to me. We wanted to be in this part of Raleigh. I didn't think finding a space to meet would be that hard, but we just kept getting no's for, the, for all sorts of different reasons. And all, long story short, in November of 2016, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, I remember that there was this church right across the street from where, or there was this, right across the street from where Christine and I lived at the time on Creedmoor Road, there was this church that would put this roadside out every Sunday. And I had no idea where they met because there was like an office park. And so I go on their website and the main thing on their website says, we're moving. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get excited about it because all things haven't worked out. Long story short, we pursued that space. We got that space and we started there. But here's the thing. If we had had any other options, we would not have pursued that space because there is a risk to signing a lease as a new church. But people had to, people had to sign up for... Um, uh, legal reasons, like if we went under, we'd have people who had to pay the remainder of our lease. There's a lot of things that we would not have pursued if we had other options. And so in the midst of our frustrations and my discouragement, what I actually thought, what I actually thought was awful ended up to be a great blessing that God was working through all of this. Even in the moment, it didn't seem like he was, right? Or even this space, right? We moved into this space in March, which is much bigger and it's nicer than the space that we were before. We had two Sundays in here and then we had, we had to close it down, right, because of COVID. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, why did we move, right? This is so expensive and we're not even using it. And how are we going to afford it? And well, do I need to start putting my resume out and get a job because this is going to like, what are we going to do, right? And now we look back on it and we actually see God's grace. First of all, we see God's grace through you guys and your generosity that has made us, allowed us to continue to move this mission forward. But we also see it this way. If you were part of New City before we moved, you know there is no reason, there is no way, especially with COVID, that we would be able to fit in our old space. Zero. I mean, we would not have been able to do it. And yet right before COVID hits, we move into a building that is giving us room as people are slowly coming back as, uh, from COVID that we could not do this other space, right? God is working even when we have no idea what's going to happen or what has happened, even when we don't see it. And the same is true for you. And let me close with this as we finish our time in Exodus chapter 2. Here's what I want us to understand, kind of the main idea from this message in this morning, and that's this, that God rescues and redeems the broken. This is what we see happening here. The Israelites are broken. Moses is a murderer, and he's broken, right? Moses' life, here's what's interesting. Moses' life did not at all turn out up until this point how he thought, right? He's rich, he's royalty, he's prestigious, he has every desire can be his at the, you know, at the tip of a hat. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. He can have whatever he wants, whatever he has it. Now he's in a foreign land. I mean, just think about this for a second. He's 40 years old. He's in Midian. He's in a place where he has no high school friends. He has no childhood memories. He has no parents or grandparents to talk about what life is like. He, imagine you moving, however old you are, to another part of the world with no internet access and nobody that knows you. Right? This is hard and depressing. This is where Moses finds himself. Not at all what he thought. So we just ask this. What about you? What about you and your life has not turned out how you thought? Maybe you don't know why you're still single or why you, th- you thought you'd have kids by now, but for some reason that hasn't happened. Or the job or career that you thought that you were going to be in hasn't at all played out the way that you had anticipated. Maybe you have a lot of financial debt and you have no idea how to get out of it. Uh, Maybe there's a health concern for you or a loved one that has completely changed the trajectory of your life. Maybe there's other pain and suffering that you have gone through that you could have never have imagined. All of us in certain areas in our life, and for some of us, our entire lives have not at all turned out the way that we wanted And we need to understand and remember that that is exactly who God rescues and redeems. What's interesting about Moses is God is now going to use Moses, not in his royalty, not in his power, not in his socioeconomic high status, but in his low-classness, his rejection, and his rebellion, and his living in a foreign land. God rescues and redeems the broken. That's what he does for Moses, and that's what he does for all of us if we would turn and to follow him. And so what I want to do is I want to invite the the band back up, and we're going to take communion together to celebrate 
This very fact that God rescues and redeems the broken. If you would like to join us in communion under your seat, you'll have one of these uh, COVID safe packets. And um, if you don't want to take communion, if you just want to sit and, and listen, that's totally fine as well. Communion is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Again, that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and to give his life for us, he's having a meal with his disciples. Now, what you may or may not know about this is this wasn't just some like last meal that they were having together because Jesus was about to die. And in fact, during this last meal, he's explaining to his disciples what's going to happen and they're really confused. They don't quite understand it. But they're having a meal together that's called Passover. Now, Passover, as we'll find out shortly here in Exodus, is a remembrance of God delivering the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Again, showing us the scripture is a unified story that leads to who? Okay, we're in church. Scripture, is, just so you don't know, it's always, the, it's always Jesus. Scripture is a unified story that leads to who? Jesus. Jesus. Even this meal is a reminder of that. That just like God rescued the Israelites, Jesus came to not just save the Israelites, but to save anybody who would follow him, who who would admit their brokenness. One of the amazing things about following Jesus is just simply that you and I have to be honest. We don't have to pretend. Uh, We don't have to pretend that we're perfect. We have it all together. We simply get to be honest because we know that we don't. And it takes all the pressure off, all the pressure off to know that Jesus, the Son of God, came to live the life that we could not live died the death that we deserve, and it's so that anyone who would repent and trust in him, no matter how much you've blown it, no matter how much your life does not look like you thought it would, thought it would, that God gives you grace and forgiveness, and in one day in his kingdom, there will be no more tears, there'll be no more lying, there'll be no more, no more death, there'll be no more cheating, that you and I get to participate in that kingdom, not because of us, because of Christ. Uh, and so the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, he's celebrating this Passover meal, which we'll explain more in a few weeks, and he's telling his disciples, as he's passing around the bread, this is my body broken for you. If you want to peel back that top layer, it'll reveal a wafer uh, that represents Christ's body. He said, I'm going, to, I'm, going to give my, I'm going to break my body. I'm going to give it for you. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And all of us, all of us can receive the grace and mercy of God. And so we do this in remembrance of me. He passed around the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. We're going to do this in remembrance of Christ until he returns. Let's take and eat of Christ's body together. If you go back to the second layer, we'll reveal the, the juice. Then Jesus took the cup and explained to his disciples that he is going to give his life, not just for them, not just for the Israelites, but for the entire world. That his blood would be spilled gladly, not out of obligation, not because God the Father said, but because he wanted to give us a way to experience life with him. That Moses and the Exodus story is, is in the liberation of the Israelites or, or pointing to the liberation that all of us can experience uh, because of Jesus and what he has done for us. And so he said, this is my blood that's going to be shared for you. Take and drink in remembrance what Jesus has done for us.